when we read the New Testament, we recognize the Apostle Paul as the greatest missionary who ever lived. Of course, he was the first missionary in the book of Acts. So he set the pattern for how missions is to be done in a local church. He was sent out of a local church. He traveled to areas that had no gospel witness. He started churches. He trained men. From his epistles, we know that he set elders in the church. He sent out pastors like Timothy and Titus and set them in churches. And, and there's been many books that have been written exploring the missionary methods of the Apostle Paul. Some of the letters that Paul wrote, some of the letters that he wrote, was to churches he had started, like Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus. Some of the letters that Paul wrote was to churches he did not start and probably had never visited. For example, the book of Colossians. Paul preached in the region where Colossae was located. There's no record that he ever went there. In fact, there were two other cities in that region, Hierapolis and Laodicea. They were very close by, and Colossae was not a major city. It wasn't a prominent city. But those other two cities were. So if he went to that region to start a church, it would be more likely that he started it in Laodicea or Hierapolis. Also in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul writes to him, he says, I, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. And for them that are Laodicea, and for as many as not seen my face in the flesh. So I don't believe that Paul was ever at Colossae. So some letters he wrote to churches he had started, churches he knew. Some letters he wrote to churches that he'd never been to. One of the letters that he wrote to that he had never been to is the book of Romans. He had never been to Rome. And he writes this letter sometime around A.D. 56, A.D. 57. He's at the end of his third missionary journey. He's in Corinth, and he's headed for Jerusalem. You know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that he had collected an offering for the churches at Macedonia for the poor saints of Jerusalem because they were bearing the brunt of persecution. He had collected this offering. He's going to go to Jerusalem to deliver that offering, and he wants to be there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. But he doesn't want to stay long. Because right after that, he plans to start his fourth missionary journey, and he hoped that that would take him to Rome. Rome, of course, is the capital of the Roman Empire. And I believe that in his heart, he thought, if I could go to Rome, make connections with the church that is already there, then that could be a base for a Western expansion, hopefully as far as into Spain. You can read that in the book of Romans. So before he leaves Corinth, he sits down to write a letter to that church at Rome that he had never been to, but he hopes to be there. Now, we know that there was a church there. What we don't know is how was that church started? Who started that church? Catholic tradition says that Peter started that church, that he was the bishop of the church at Rome, which would then make him the first pope. About the only thing that we are pretty sure of is that Peter did not start the church at Rome. In fact, there is some dispute as to whether he ever visited Rome or not. We're going to start in a couple of weeks preaching through 1 Peter. I love that book, and we're going to preach through it on Sunday morning. There is great debate among commentators as to where Peter was when he wrote 1 Peter. Because in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13... He talks about the church at Babylon salute you. Well, that's kind of plain. Everybody can identify that. But no, 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 that's, that, that's not right. Because what all the many commentators say 
is that actually Peter's using code language. Because it was so dangerous and all the persecution, he's really in Rome. So the church at Rome salute you. There's no record he was ever at Babylon. He's really at Rome, but he says Babylon. It's code language, kind of like anonymously. And I have read every argument for why he was actually in Rome, but then I go back to 1 Peter 5, 13, it still says Babylon. It still says Babylon. So, so I, 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 I don't know Greek and Hebrew. And I, I'm just a dumb preacher boy. I'm still thinking he's at Babylon because that's what it said, all right? That's, I'm just going to have to go by what it says, all right? But the Catholic Church really needs to get him to Rome somehow. Visit, go on a vacation. They need him in Rome. So that's, so that's what happens. That's what happens, all right? I, I don't believe he was there. For one thing, when Paul wrote Romans, at the last chapter, he names 27 people by name. These are people that he knows, though he's never been there. He knows 27 people by name. Peter is not one of them. What well, would be strange to write a letter to the church of Rome and at least not say hi to the pastor, okay? <laughs> furthermore, furthermore, Paul would write five letters from Rome to other churches. And in those five letters, he doesn't mention Peter in any of them. Again, that's kind of strange. In Acts 2 and verse 10, Pentecost, it talks about strangers from Rome. There were probably some Jews from Rome, traveled down to Jerusalem for Pentecost, got saved, came back to their city, and that's probably how the church started. Now, whenever I study a book, there's a series of questions I always ask. Who? Who wrote it? When? Where? To whom and why? You can't understand a book until you know those five things. Sometimes the answer is very obvious. He wrote 1 Corinthians to correct errors in the church at Corinth. He wrote 1 Thessalonians to commend an exemplary church. He wrote Titus and Timothy to instruct a young pastor. So why did Paul write this letter to this church? Well, 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 it's written to a church that doesn't have apostolic instruction. There's no apostle there. So Paul writes them to ground them in good doctrine. Teaches them the gospel of the grace of God. But Paul also wrote Romans to introduce himself and to prepare them for a visit that he wanted to make. So in his opening line, he introduces himself. He is introducing himself to a church that does not know him. They know of him, but they've never met him. He's never preached there. They've never seen his face. So how would you introduce yourself to a congregation whom you've never met? Whenever I have a guest preacher come in that's been here for the first time, I give him some kind of introduction. And I want to give due honor. I want to be respectful. If this man has accomplished a lot, then you need to say that. But I have never really cared for flowering, flowing, flattering introductions that just puts a man up on a pedestal. Um, this week I preached in this conference and they introduced me every night as Dr. Fuller. I don't know where they got that from. 
You can't find that. Now, I, I have an honorary doctorate. It, it's somewhere in a drawer somewhere. It's, it's somewhere back there. No, it's hanging up in my office. It's hanging in my office. And the reason why is because I have my bachelor's degree and I needed something to hang on this side. And so that was the only other thing I had. And so, so that's, that's what it is. I, I didn't want to hang up, you know, the blue ribbon that I won in the fair. So, so, so that's, that's what I hung up. But I, I, have, I have been to places where the pastor felt like he has to build you up. God impressed the church that this great preacher's going to be here. And it's embarrassing for a pastor to introduce you as somebody that you know you're not. How do you get up and preach after he just puts you on a pedestal you know you don't belong to? Now, everybody expects the next person to get up now. I mean, boy, I can't wait to hear this guy. Well, you're getting ready to be really disappointed. huh? But how would you introduce yourself to a new audience? What do they need to know? And in verse number one, Paul introduces himself to this church at Rome, and I think it's fascinating. And I want you to notice, first of all, that he identifies himself with a special name. Look at Romans 1 and verse 1, Paul. Now, there's nothing especially significant about that, except he wasn't always known as Paul. For most of his life, he was known as Saul, but now he is known as Paul. Now, I'm going to ruin some good preaching right here, but i got to be honest. God did not change his name at conversion. Now, if he did, that'd be a great preaching point right there. That, that's not what happened. You see, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. He probably had both names at birth. Since his ministry would not be to Hebrews, but to Romans and Gentiles, then it was more natural for Luke to call him by his Greek name, Paul. And I really believe that that's all there is to the change in name. Here's the reason why. He is called Saul many times after his conversion. So it's not a conversion change. Now Saul, Saul was born to Tars in Tarsus. He was born to a wealthy Jewish family. Given the best education, uh, he would be well-versed in Greek culture, though they were not Hellenized. They, they, they remained a Hebrew family. Um, uh, at age 13, he would have been sent off to Jerusalem to study at the feet of the most famous rabbi of that time. His name was Gamaliel. He would learn Greek, Hebrew. He would have learned Aramaic. He would study the law, but he would also study the Mishnah and the Torah and all the traditions. He came from a lineage of Pharisees. In fact, he became a Pharisee himself. So, 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 so he was highly respected in Jewish circles as a holy man of God. But, but then Saul became alarmed at the spreading threat of Christianity. He saw the followers of Jesus Christ as dangerous. He saw them as heretical. And when he heard them, when he heard them preach about a crucified Messiah, man, it just filled him with rage. And here's the reason why. Deuteronomy said that anyone left on a tree to die is accursed. So how could you say that the Messiah was accursed on a cross? That was blasphemy to him. And so in his blind zeal for Judaism, he becomes the chief inquisitor against the church. He would later say how that he had them beaten, he had them arrested, he had them thrown into prison. It's his mission to, to, to stamp out Christianity and stamp out this cult of Christianity. He hates the church because he hates the man, Jesus Christ. That was Saul. But it wasn't Saul anymore. Because that all changed on the day on that Damascus road when the Lord arrested him by that light that was brighter than the noonday sun. And though his name 
was not changed that day, everything else changed. Through the discipleship of, of a few men, Saul is, is welcomed into the church. He becomes a, a leader of the church at Antioch. When the church decides to send two men out in Acts 13, they choose Saul and Barnabas. They go out. They go on that first missionary journey, and it's on that first missionary journey in Acts 13 that that name change is complete. From there on, he's called Paul. Now listen, again, God didn't change his name at conversion. Sometimes a man changes his own name. Sometimes other people change his name for him. But a change in name often indicates there's a change in something else. I was born Timothy James Fuller. When I was a little boy, I was called Timmy. Timmy. Well, that's real dignified. Timmy. Well, I don't want to be known as Pastor Timmy. So there came a day when I grew out of Timmy and I became Tim. And I can't help but think that every time that Paul wrote Paul, it reminded him that he wasn't always that Paul. There was a time when folks began to call him by a new name, but more importantly, there was a time when the old life represented by the old life ceased. No longer saw the Pharisee. No longer saw the persecutor. That's all in the past. Now it is Paul the preacher. There's a change reflected in that name. But there was also courage reflected in that name. Because Paul's going to Rome. Rome, if you please, is the belly of the beast. He didn't know this yet, but he's actually going as a prisoner. And he's going to be in prison for two years. He's going to be out going to be arrested again, and he's going to be beheaded not very far away from Rome. So Paul, as dangerous as it is, maybe you should assume a name. Maybe you should go anonymously. Maybe you should adopt a pen name. But don't, I mean, don't put your name right there. Everybody's going to know who you are. Because Rome, Paul, Rome is where the circus maximum is. That's where they take Christians and set them in the Colosseum and let wild beasts out and just devour them. Because Paul, Rome is where Nero is, the madman who blames everything bad on Christians that they're the scapegoats. So, so Paul, Rome is a dangerous place and for, for your own safety, maybe you ought not announce your presence. Maybe you ought to just slip in under the cover and not make a stir. But that's not what it is. He says, no, Paul. He signs his name on the line. My name is Paul. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of why I'm coming. I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I preach. I, I'm coming to your city. I have something to say. I'm not ashamed. I, I'm not frightened. I'm not intimidated. I'm coming in the power of the Holy Ghost. So, so here's what I ask you this morning. Do you identify with a changed name or changed life? If you were to tell your story, how much would conversion play a part in that story. Because in truth, if you're saved, it's the biggest part of your story. There is nothing in your life that has happened as monumental, as life-changing, as getting saved. Paul, a special name. But then I want you to notice that he identifies with a servant's heart. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want a little bit of humor, if you want a little bit of humor, then read all of the reasons that the Bible correctors changed servant to slave in the New Testament. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. 
or, or Paul a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And here's what they've done. They've latched onto the idea that the Greek word for servant and slave is the same Greek word. So it could be either word. They'll change it to bondservant. Anything to demonstrate their superior knowledge over the word of God. So, so, so is it servant or is it slave? Which one should it be? The word slave carries a very negative connotation. Anytime, any place. A slave is someone who is forced to serve against his will. A slave is someone who is mistreated, is abused. A slave is someone who has no dignity, no human worth, but a servant. A servant is someone who serves maybe out of a debt that he owes. Maybe, maybe because the master provides for him. Maybe because he just loves the master. Can I tell you that I am not a slave to Jesus Christ? Because the Bible says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you are free indeed. And a slave has no freedom. In fact, in fact, we're not slaves to sin. We are servants to sin. Because service, service gives you wages. The wages of sin is death. We're not slaves to Christ. We're servants to Christ. We're commanded to yield and to obey and to serve. And to spend. That's not slavery language. That's servant language. And a slave has, he has no will to serve, no will to surrender. He, he is forced to serve. But I serve my Lord gladly. I, I am compelled by love and grace. I'm not a slave to Christ. I'm gladly a servant of Christ. So Paul's writing to church, never met him. He says, here's what I want you to know about me. A servant of Jesus Christ. Here's what's remarkable, is what he didn't say. He'll give his credentials as apostle next, but first, I'm just a servant. Not, not the acclaimed author. Not, not the international speaker. Not, not, not the greatest missionary who ever lived. None of the titles, none of the trappings that we would give ourselves. I'm just a servant. When, when I come to you, don't get your expectations too high. I'm not coming as a famous preacher. I'm not coming as somebody who's accomplished so much. No, my resume is very short. Just call me a servant, a servant. I've noticed in our Baptist churches in the last decade or so that we've caught on to the idea of leadership and developing leadership. And I, I think that's a good thing. And so I'm not knocking anybody who has a leadership conference. I've been to them and they're wonderful. But I wonder if we wouldn't do as good or better to maybe focus on our servanthood as much as our leadership. Because there's too many people that want a title and they want a position. All a servant needs is a job. Just tell me what needs to be done. Tell me where you need me right now. Tell me where, where, where you need my services. Even in our independent Baptist circles, uh, uh, we have too many preachers who are too impressed with their abilities and, and their credentials and their own name. Twitter and Facebook, they have become the, the medium for, for narcissists in the pulpit to tell you how great they are and what a wonderful sermon I preached and how many came to the altar and how busy I am. And, and social media has become nothing but a tool for propagandists. But when you're putting your own propaganda out, something's wrong with that. I can't imagine Paul having a Twitter to come up with a clever quip, some clever quote to have. Just call me a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I'm not shooting at anybody in this church, all right? I, I really am not. But did you know that in every church, there's always a handful of people who do most of the work? Yeah. 
I should have got at least one amen out of it, just one. It's, and, and, and it's those people who make the work go on. Now listen, come out and service hard. There are people who will help if you ask them. There are people beat you to the punch. You don't ever ask them to help. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Stay with me. If, if, we're, if we're cleaning the fellowship hall, I don't care who I ask and give them a broom, they'll sweep. Anybody will. There are some people already have the broom. Do you, do you see the difference? That's what you call having a servant's heart. And really all of us ought to do a little introspection and ask, do I have a servant's heart? Am I known for my serving? And I'm going to tell you something. If you're not, you are missing one of the great blessings of the Christian life. And the way that you develop a servant's heart is by serving. And what it does is it gives you satisfaction to know that you help somebody else. Now, you think it's satisfying to have somebody help you. I'm going to tell you, the deeper satisfaction is knowing you help somebody else. Paul is the greatest missionary who ever lived. And he said, just call me servant. servant. He's introducing himself to a new church. They've ever met him, never been there, never preached in that pulpit. And he identifies with a special name. I'm Paul. And I want you to know my name. And he identifies with a servant's heart. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that he identifies with a specific calling. Called to be an apostle. Now, apostle is a gift from God. Nowadays, if you want to be apostle, you can go on the website. You can get your plaque and a certificate and hang in your office. And you can be called an apostle. But that's not a true apostle. An apostle was chosen and commissioned by Christ to be his direct representatives. And we read that apostle is one of the gifts that Christ gave to the church. God has set some of the church first apostles, secondarily prophets, and thirdly teachers. Not all spiritual gifts are offices, but all offices are spiritual gifts. An apostle means sent one. He is a messenger who has been officially commissioned on a mission. He has received direct revelation from God. He's given authority by Christ to, 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 to preside over the affairs of the church. And Paul uses that title because he wants the Romans to know that he writes with the authority of Christ on him. But how did Paul become an apostle? Well, he didn't take a vocational test that said, you know, this sounds like this would be a good career track for you. He wasn't persuaded by family or friends that said, Paul, you've always had the gift of talking. You ought to be a preacher. No. He didn't look through ministry advertisements of the sword of the Lord or whatever periodical they had. I don't think they had that back then, but whenever whatever they had back then. And so, oh, there's an opening for apostle. No, he is called to be an apostle. He didn't choose it. It chose him. Arise, Paul, and go in Damascus. There shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. He didn't seek it. He didn't sign up for it. No, he was chosen to be that. Only God could take his worst enemy and make him his best ambassador. He has a specific calling on his life. I gave this testimony the other night in that tabernacle when I was preaching. Watch night service, 1977. December 31st, 77. January 1st, 1978. About five or six miles from here in Pace, behind that grocery store, there's a Bible Baptist church in Pace, Florida. And there was a man pastor in that church back then. His name was Don Sessions. He was having a watch night service, and Holbrook Swift was preaching that night. And that night, we were sitting in that watch night service. And I don't remember what time, but sometime before midnight, they gave an invitation. 
And as an eight-year-old boy, I walked the aisle, and I knelt right there, and that's where I surrendered to preach. And I've given my testimony before. I, I grew up around preachers. Preachers were my heroes. That's been 44 years since that night. And I'm going to tell you, that call in my heart is as real now as it was back then. And I don't know why, but I thank God for a calling on my life. Now listen, I know you and I are not apostles, but do you have a calling of God on your life? I cannot explain the call to preach. I believe it is a specific call. I've had young men say, hey, how do you know that you're called to preach? I don't know. Wake up one morning craving fried chicken and don't want to go to work. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you know. I just know that I am. But, but sitting here this morning, not everybody is called to preach, but God has gifted you for some ministry. God has opened doors for you. He has given you an aptitude for some part in the body of Christ. Maybe God has called you to be an ambassador at that workplace because in that dark environment where there are sinners that only, they only know how to cuss and drink and smoke. That's all they know how to do. And God cares for them. And so he took one of his bright lights and he put him in that dark place and said, I want you, this is my calling for your life. I want you to be my ambassador, my representative, my witness in this dark corner. Amen. You see, it's just a job. No, it's your ministry. This is where God has put you. Maybe God has called you to stay in that home as a mother and raise those children and be the godly influence. My wife has never preached a sermon. Well, she has to me, but other outwards. My wife has never preached a sermon. My wife is not a conference speaker. She gets invited. People want to come and speak at ladies' conference. She hates to do that. She is not a woman preacher. I'll tell you what my wife does do, what she did. My wife sat in that home when those little kids were coming up. My wife would set her alarm clock. And my wife would get up like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and she would go into that bedroom where the little babies were sleeping and she'd pray. And my kids are sitting in this auditorium and serving God and it's not because daddy went around the country preaching. Because there's a woman that said, my calling is not to go speak. And No, my calling is to raise those kids for God. Do you have a calling of God on your life? He's introducing himself to a church that's never met him. The identity of a missionary. And he says, I have a specific name, Paul. I'm not ashamed of it. And he says, I have a special name. He says, I have a servant's heart. I have a specific calling. But here's the part I like. I have a singular focus, separated under the gospel of God. Have you ever met somebody with a one-track mind? Named Jacob Fleur. You ever met anybody like that? <laughs> you, you ever met somebody that whatever's on their mind at the moment, that is what we were going to talk about that, right? Jacob's that way. He slipped out, so I'll talk about it. My son is an extremist in whatever he does, whatever he does. If he take up golf, we all going to take up golf. We all going to be playing, okay? And we're going to get the hat, shoes, the club, and take the left. We're going to do the whole nine things, all right? He's not a multitasker. But he, he's, he's zoned in. If you sat down with Paul, he's not going to talk sports with you. If you sat down with Paul, he could care less about social politics. I am sure if you sat down with him, we are eventually, pretty soon, going to be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, in the verse 16 verses, he mentions the gospel four times. It is obvious this book is about the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It wasn't just a church word. The word gospel was a secular word. And, and the Greeks would use that word for, for important announcements. You know, when a war was won, they would send a messenger back to the town or, or back home with, with the news that, that victory has won. The Romans would use the word to announce news about the emperor. A, a new heir was born or, or an, an emperor uh, uh, seated to the throne or something like that. Did you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the announcement of the good news that Jesus Christ was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. It is the announcement of the greatest victory that has ever been won. The gospel is God's announcement that he sent his son to provide for your salvation. And the gospel is God's invitation to be reconciled to him through the blood of his son. And the gospel is God's command to end your rebellion against him and obey him and accept him as your rightly Lord. And that gospel was the singular focus of Paul's ministry. You think about this, I'm almost done. It, it, he's coming to Rome. If you wanted to take on a corrupt government, Rome was the place to be. If you wanted a ministry of fixing everything that is wrong in society, Rome is as good a place as any. And we do preach against the sins of society. And we recognize we live in a very corrupt country. And we lend our voice against the injustices of our land. And I'm not saying that every time that you preach it, that you had to preach the gospel. But all of our complaints against crooked elections and vaccines and, and all of that, it is not going to see one person saved. So Paul said, I'm not coming to Rome to straighten Rome out. I don't have a hobby horse. I am coming to preach Christ. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I determine to not know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was zoned in on the gospel. We supported a missionary in this church for, for many years, and I, I may have told you why we dropped him, but we supported a missionary for many years. And a couple of years ago, we, we dropped his support. And he's a friend. He's a friend, and so have no criticism. But about a couple of months after we dropped his support, he sent me a letter and a book. Over the course of the years of his ministry, he had studied and he had written a book, and it was on the mid-trib rapture. Now, we pre-trib, all right? That simply means that we believe the rapture, then the tribulation. I'm gone before it even starts. But there was a wave of guys that have taken different positions. He was pre-trib. But he had changed his position. Basically, he was pre-trib, but the tribulation was only three and a half years. So the rapture was before that. It was really a pre-trib, mid-trib mishmash. He sent me this book. And I sat down one afternoon in that office back there, and I took a 200-page book, and I was just going to read through it. I, I've read the arguments before, and I was going to read through it. And as I read, I was very impressed on his knowledge of the subject. And he was very passionate about the subject. I've read Marv Rosenthal, Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. I thought this would be a rehash of it. It wasn't. It wasn't. This man for years has studied, he had researched, he had come to his conclusion, though I disagree with his position, 
I was impressed with how he came to him. And then reading that, I, I was convicted. And here's why. Am I as passionate about the gospel as this man is about a fringe issue, the mid-trib rapture? I, I wonder if I care as much about seeing people saved and getting the gospel out as any man cares for any hobby horse that he's riding. And you and I can get carried away in a lot of things. But my life's calling is to simply be a preacher of the gospel of God. Can you identify with that? Can you say, I have a new identity in Christ? Same name, different man. They used to call me Saul, but now they call me Paul. They used to listen to my dirty jokes. Now they have to listen to my testimony. They used to think I was one of the boys. Now they know I am not one of them. Can you honestly say, I have a servant's heart? I don't need a position. I don't need a title. And I don't need my name on a sign above the door. I don't need to impress you with my credentials, with my accomplishments. Just let me be a servant. Do you have a sense of a calling on your life? Not called to preach. Maybe never called to full-time ministry. But God's placed you somewhere. He has given you a sphere of influence. And life must be more than building a fortune or having as much fun as I can get out of life. Is there a calling in your life? And can you truly say, I'm focused on preaching the gospel to the lost? Last year with the election, I was a political junkie. And I've told you this. And I watched Fox News and I had my websites. And I was a conspiracy theory. Boy, I was really close to it. I believe with all of my heart the election was stolen. I believe that. Probably most of you believe that. I, I think our country is so crooked and so corrupt. And boy, I stayed up with all of that. Every day, every morning, every night, I was checking those websites. Everything was happening. Well, I stayed up with it. And I realized I spent more time hoping in Trump than I did in Jesus. And there came a point where I got convicted about that. I turned it all off. I am as disgusted over our politics as anybody in this room. But I pray that I never preach Trump more than I preach Jesus Christ. The hope of this nation is not the Republican Party. The hope of our nation does not rest in the next election. The hope of our nation is still in Jesus Christ. Just preach Christ. The identity. Of a missionary, would you value?